Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. Welcome to Season 3 of Think Like a Game Designer. I'm very excited to continue to bring you more amazing guests, design lessons, and tips about the gaming industry, but I also want to share something new and exciting that I'm launching this year. In addition to the podcast and the book for Think Like a Game Designer, I'm also launching a masterclass for those that really want to go deep into game design and work with an incredible group of people to take your projects to the next level. We've already had an incredible beta group go through the course last year. It includes video lessons from me, access to an exclusive Discord group, monthly masterminds where we can dive deep into the actual problems that you have with your own designs and really walk you through everything that it takes to go from initial idea, whether you have a project you really want to work on or you have no idea where to start, all the way through to getting your game published, whether that's launching it via Kickstarter, launching your own company, selling it to a publisher, or whatever you want to do to make your game design dreams come true. If you think you might be the right fit for this course, go to thinklikeagamedesigner.com to learn more. In today's episode, I speak with John Zinzer. John is the CEO of Alderac Entertainment Group, better known as AEG, and he has over 30 years of experience running businesses and being in the game industry. John has been a good friend of mine for a long time and was one of my mentors as I was first starting up my own company, and I have been trying to get him on this podcast for quite some time, and it's amazing that we were able to do this. He recently had a brain tumor that he had gotten removed, and he is now back and up and running. And it was amazing to be able to share a lot of his wisdom with everyone. And I'm even more grateful for these opportunities to speak with him now. And so I hope you guys really appreciate all of the incredible insights that are here. Now, the first 20 minutes or so of this episode are a lot about John's origin story, and they have near nothing to do with the game industry at first. But you're going to see how these lessons that he learned from starting and running his own pizza business to selling golf course maps to learning about the magazine industry all led to key lessons that he has since applied to his games, design, and company within the gaming industry. So definitely pay attention to that section. And it's just a really great story. John is an amazing storyteller, and that really comes across throughout the course of this episode. We also learned the story of L5R, which is one of the coolest trading card game story-based experiences that I've ever seen, and how the organized play and tournament scene from that was a huge part of its success and turned it into a rabid fan base, unlike anything I've seen in probably any other game. We talk about Kickstarter and marketing in the modern era, how you build communities, and what it's like to have fans that feel like owners, and the storytelling of that. We talk about how to pitch to a game company. John has been a great resource for people, uh, allowing designers to pitch to AEG, and we talk a little bit about what makes great pitches. There are so many valuable lessons throughout this, and a what is really, in many ways, a great history, not only of John's career, but of the gaming industry in general. He's had such a huge impact on the industry. He's had a huge impact on me personally. And I know that after listening to this, he'll have a huge impact on you as well. So without further ado, here is John Zinzer. Hello and welcome. I am here with John Zinzer. John, it's great to finally get to have this podcast together. 
Yeah, it is very nice. I'm excited that we're able to do it finally. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's one of the things that is has been my mission with this podcast is to really help connect people in the industry to be able to uh, inspire and empower people out there that want to either get in the industry or level up in the industry. And and I have, you know, watched you for a very long time and we've been friends now for a very long time and and I've seen you sort of live this uh, for so long, you have inspired so many people. You have enabled so many people to to kind of come up in this space, and you're continuing to do so and innovate in, in it. And so, I'm excited to kind of share and go through that whole story. and And we're going to start with your origin story. But but first, I got to say my part of my origin story, which is before you and I met, and I first started my company, and we f- first started kind of coming up in the industry. The number one comment I got from people was. Oh, I think you're going to be the next John Zinser. <laughs> and, uh, right. and I was like, I didn't know whether that was a compliment or not uh, at the time. But uh, afterwards, now I know to take it as quite the big compliment. So I don't know if I've lived up to those shoes, but it's been a pretty entertaining ride. Absolutely. Well, I think you you sort of went down the, uh, you know, I'm going to focus on creative path. And for my first 25 years, I was sort of focused on the business side of the the, the business. So I think you took the better path. Well, you know, they uh, they both have their charms. And and frankly, I uh, this is part of where I, I have my own selfish reasons here, because I want to learn a lot of the lessons from you and, and share some of these stories, because the business side is not easy. And, the, you know, there's this dream that the, the creative side of this business is, you know, you make a good game and you put it out there and everything's going to be just fine. And uh, and there's, there's a lot more to it. And, and you, I think, can can illustrate that story probably better than most. So. Um, so w- why don't we kind of just, you know, briefly start at the beginning. I know the people that are familiar with you will, will have heard the story some before, but, but some people maybe haven't. And it's, and it's great about kind of where you came from and, and how you got to, you know, found AEG and become who you are. Okay, great. Um, so I was a serial entrepreneur. Um, uh, when I was in college, I went to school in Southeast Missouri. While I was in school, I, um, I decided to open a pizza place. Uh, which did pretty well. And I ended up dropping out of school my junior year to to sort of follow that dream. The pizza um, dream. The dream of owning pizza places. <laughs> I opened up a little chain of pizza places and, um, and I was working unbelievable hours. I, it, it, the, the dream was, was a little bit more of a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And so um, I decided to um, sell the pizza places in Missouri to my partners and moved to St. Louis, uh, mainly because my girlfriend moved to St. Louis. May, um, may I ask just about the, I, well, I want to dig into the pizza place a little bit because I, I find this sort of fascinating. This was the first business that you had started? It is the first business that I started, yes. What What made you, A, decide to open a pizza place and B, you know, be you know successful enough to kind of grow it and sell it what do you think was was key because i see a lot of pizza places and it's not an easy business to succeed in so um i grew up um working at a at a local uh, a very nice local pizza place called john's pizza pasta and ice cream and it was sort of always a dream of 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 mine to to get into that business i don't know why it was um it was much easier to work for a pizza place than it was to run pizza places. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my buddy Dave and I got on a, you know, decided we were going to try and open a pizza place in Cape Girardeau. And we started, you know, we started by going to a bank and asking them, you know, Hey, we want to open a pizza place. There's our business plan. Uh, will you give us a loan? And, um, 
uh, the first guy we met, his name was Lindy Duncan. He was super nice. And he sort of explained that that's not the way things work, that um, uh, we needed to make, we had, we needed to have some assets or, or some way to, to secure the loan. And, uh, and just having an idea was not, was, was not good enough. Uh, so we spent a year, a year going around and meeting with investors. We, um, uh, we bought the pizza, pizza recipe from the original place that we worked at. We threw pizza parties um, and we worked for a year. And then my buddy Dave got, um, got, he decided that he just didn't want to do it anymore. And I, I just kept doing it. I kept going for another four or five months. And um, Lindy, who was also a, was a local entrepreneur, owned um, convenience stores, uh, called me up and he's like, you're still trying to get that pizza place open. He says, I think I might have a way for you to do it. We'd like to put one in our new convenience store that we're opening up in Scott City. There's no restaurants in that city. And we think that having a pizza place inside of our, inside of our um, convenience store would be great. Yeah. And so we did it. I, it may have been the first hybrid convenience store pizza place <laughs> ever. Yeah. That was like, let's say 40 years ago, but that's 35 years ago, maybe something like that. So, um, so we, we had a very teeny tiny corner of a convenience store where we made and delivered pizzas to this um, farming town called Scott, Scott city. And it was a it was very successful business that could run with you know me and three other employees. It was great. Yeah, it, it's funny because I think you know obviously it's you know maybe people listening they're like hey I want to get to the game industry stuff but I think there's tons of great lessons that come you know right from this right that the origin story which is also similar to to mine when you know it, that you work for somebody that was successful and was in the business before you tried to start it yourself and were able to learn from doing it from somebody else that. Uh, the idea by itself is not worth that much <laughs> that in fact it's the legwork and having to actually validate the ideas and build the network and do the things uh, is what really matters and you know being able to kind of do you know do the hard work and the hustle to get something to happen uh, so yeah I, I can already see the seeds of uh, where this uh, these skills come into value later yeah so I mean I think the only the, the main uh, the, the main reason why Lindy contacted me was not because he wanted to put a pizza place in this thing uh, in, in his convenience store was because, you know, he saw that a year and a half later, I was still out beating the, 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 the pavement trying to figure out how to get that pizza place open. Yep. Yep. And that's really the thing that distinguishes the people that I see succeed in all walks of life. And, uh, you know, and, and compared to others, you're willing to kind of put in that work and hustle and keep going, even when most people would quit and most people would not, you know, would stop. It's like, oh, that was a good idea, but I, whatever, it's not going to happen. So, um, but uh, so great. I'm glad we dug into that because I didn't, I didn't quite know that much about that part of the, your story. Yeah. So, uh, so I opened the pizza place. My girlfriend moved to St. Louis. I sold the pizza places to my partner so that I could move to St. Louis and open another pizza place with um, the guy who sold me my cheese. Um, <laughs> I learned two lessons. I learned, um, I learned don't ever sell your business for a girl. <laughs> Good tip. That Pro tip. <laughs> that didn't work out. And um, I also learned the location, location, location rule. We opened the pizza place up in St. Louis on one of the busiest roads, but there was no way to turn in and out of our of our pizza place. And so mm. we watched hundreds of thousands of customers drive by every day, and that business struggled 
So uh, we did that for about a year. I got out of that business and got into um, I got into the golf advertising business again because um, I had a guy that would come by the pizza place every week and try to sell me advertising. He was a real hustler, and we you know it was local mail you know things to the local people, give them coupons and stuff. And so we did some of it, and. Um, w- one day we sat down and started talking about um, those city guides that uh, remember when those were real popular, when a business could buy like their, their shop on a map of the city. And, oh yeah. 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 So w- we were talking about, uh, we were talking about those city guides and I said, you know, what would be uh, beneficial to me as a, as a golfer is to do one of those city guides real nice, but as a, as a golf guide that would tell me where all of the, the golf courses that I could play. So that blossomed into that, that blossomed into sort of a, an idea that we thought we would do, you know, on the weekends or on my days off, we got a golf map of St. Louis done. And um, it was this gigantic poster size thing that we had to carry around in a special container we loaded in. We loaded it up into the car and um, uh, went and saw seven golf courses and sold seven ads. And I remember calling my dad and saying, "I'm out of the pizza business. I'm going in the golf business." <laughs> That's great. That's great. So this was another, this is one of those cases of kind of scratching your own itch, right? Finding yep. something that you you really wanted to see and making it come to life yourself you waited until you you did it as a side hustle kind of until you instant sounds like instantaneously validated it by getting you know seven for seven customers and then you knew you had something and ran with it yeah my um my business partner in in that business his name was eric tivoli i think i learned everything i probably know today about selling from him he had all of the best things that salespeople have going for them and um in some cases, all of the worst things that salespeople have going for them. So we we did this golf map in St. Louis, and we probably sold 50 golf courses and golf shops advertising on that map. And it was very profitable. And um, and we had a plan to finish it up, get it to press, and then you know within 30 days, head to Atlanta and do the second map there. Right. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was the perfect scenario. Then the delay started. We had money and I was like, when are we going to Atlanta? And Eric's like, I've got this thing to do and I've got that thing to do. (laughs) Um, Eric went through all of his money and um, and then started borrowing money from me. And I didn't know any better. I was just like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, let's like like we're leaving for Atlanta next week. Right. He's like, yeah, next week, next week, two and a half months. Oh, all of his money was gone. All of my money was gone. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, literally broke except for a few dollars that we had in our pocket. And he's like, okay, uh, it's time for us to go to Atlanta. We got into the car and started driving. And I thought, well, this is a catastrophe waiting to happen. And on the way to Atlanta in the car, he secured free hotel for two months, (laughs) a free rental car for while we were there. Wow. And free airline tickets so that we could come back to St. Louis. He traded for everything. He contacted the hotels. He started calling them and saying, "Hey, are you uh, uh, is is the is the is the manager or owner a golfer?" 
called like six or seven, finally got a holiday in where the, the guy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, our manager's a golfer. Can I talk to him? Eric basically told him we were coming into town to sell advertising in a golf guide and that we would shower him with free stuff if he would hook us up with rooms. And he did. He just like we got there, we checked in. One of the great things about working with Eric was we didn't pay for hotels. We didn't pay for food. We didn't pay for travel. Everything was a trade. And the value of that for, for advertising, especially in the golf world, was, was amazing because you could always find a golfer and bring them free stuff that you could pick up from your golf courses. This is this is really funny. This is uh, this reminds me so much of my dad. He was always, you know, wheeling and dealing. He would call it everything was a trade. Everything was like a negotiated thing. And he was a lawyer. So it was relatively easy to trade. Right. Everybody needs a lawyer from now and then. And he's like, you got to wheel and deal. And I realized that as a game designer, your assets are far less fungible. <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot less people that really need game design or games than others. So, you know, sometimes people are really excited, but but my my hustle ability was somewhat restricted. <laughs> yes, I think that, that yeah, I did, I did realize that when I got into the gaming industry. You give away more free games than you can trade them for goods and services. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I, I gotta, I gotta dig in more because you mentioned, you know, you've learned all your, you know, all the, the best and worst of sales from Eric and, you know, certainly the sort of trading and negotiating and thing is there, but are there other lessons that you could, uh, you could distill, uh, in a way that, uh, our audience could parcel out? Cause that well, seems was, like I would be, yeah, seems key. He was always very, he was always very prepared. Um, and he had, we had a, um, we had a budget for how much money we were going to spend, um, a, a light budget for how much money we were going to spend on the golf guide and on getting it distributed. And for the first 10 or 15 sales calls that we would go on in a, in a new city, um, somebody would say, well, are you going to put the golf guides in those little, those little things where you can pick them up at, at hotels? Eric would say, well, yes, of course, we're, 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 we're going to have a, a very robust ability to get our golf guides if, if you stay at, at the nicer hotels in and around Atlanta. And I would just have a little yellow pad and I would write distribute through hotels. <laughs> and I just kept the bullet point list of the promises that he was making. And, um, and you know, every four or five days, we'd go down that list of promises and his, his pitch got better every time we went into a new meeting. So now that we were distributing the product through, or our plans were to distribute the product through hotels, that would become part of the pitch that he was giving to the person that we were selling advertising to. So we started off promising small. And then over the course of time, as people told us what they would want to say yes to advertising in this thing, we were able to say yes to a whole bunch of of things. But since we started with such a small expense, which was just, we're going to print these golf guides, give them away at different golf courses, that turned into a whole, that turned into a whole business of, of promises, which was where, you know, he was really good at getting the, the sales done. And I was pretty good at making sure that the, the golf maps got completed and that, that all of the promises got kept. So we were a, we were a good partnership. Yeah, well, and, and it's funny too because I can't help but view this through the lens of the way I think of 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 game design. You know, where you you create and you 
you uh, create the frame and parameters for something that's very small and achievable, right? Something that you know as a small budget, and then you test it by trying to sell it. In this case, right, you're selling the things, and then you, people will tell you what you want. It's almost like playtesting your game. You're like, oh, no, what they really want is us to distribute through hotels or these things. Okay, cool. Now, the next time, now we're distributing through hotels and we're trying it at this tier. And then, you, you know, and then it's like you're sort of iterating your sales pitch and iterating your product through these individual little little pitches, which is exactly the same way that, you know, when I think about building games or new products in general, that's like how you build them. Uh, and so anyway, it's fine, pretty interesting. So we did that for um, we did that for a couple of years. We did Atlanta. We went um, we went down to Florida and then we made a big push to go. Uh, our plan was to do South Carolina. We're going to do Myrtle Beach and Hilton Head. And we got to Myrtle Beach and we could have done seven to 10 appointments a day in Myrtle Beach because the golf courses are literally right next to each other. But we did not do that. We did um, we did two appointments a day. Eric wasn't uh, he wasn't a golfer, but I was. And so I golfed every day. Like it was we'd, we'd go in, to, you know, to sell an ad and then the pro would inevitably say, oh, have you played our course yet? And we'd be like, oh, no, no, we definitely haven't played your course yet. And he'd be like, oh, our course is the best on the strand. And uh, and <laughs> I'd say, well, I got my clubs in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, we can get you out right now. It was it was, it was great. We, um, we sold advertising. I was, um, young, just out of college ish single, um, uh, in one of the greatest towns to be single in. We, you know, would go out every night and sell a couple of ads during the day. And at some point during that, what was the best part of being in that golf business was, was being in Myrtle beach. We flew my dad out. Um, I got to golf with him for a week. It was unbelievably good. We ran out of business cards and we went into a small print shop to get the business cards printed and sitting on the counter was this teeny tiny little copy of Shadis magazine. And, uh, I was like, what, what is this? what is this, this thing? And they're like, Oh, it's a gaming magazine that the guy that runs the presses in the back prints. And he's like, yeah, you want a copy? You can have it. Jolly's not here right now. Take that magazine, go, you know, I'm like, Oh, great. So I took the magazine, went back to the hotel and read it cover to cover. I was sucked back into gaming in the, in the span of one evening. And so, uh, when I went back to pick up the business cards, Jolly was there. And, you know, I think, you know, Jolly, Jolly Blackburn of Knights of the Dinner Table and mm -hmm. you know, my original partner, he was, um, self-publishing this little magazine in the back of the print shop and printing a hundred copies just because, I mean, that, that no, no reason for it. No. Just passionate, a passionate hobby or whatever, something he was just excited about. Absolutely. And so he had done four or five copies at that point. So I, I introduced myself to him and said, oh, I loved your magazine. Um, he's like, oh, I've got, you know, the first four issues here. You can take those too. And so I went back to the hotel and gobbled them up. So I, I went back and, and said, you know, can, can you tell me what's going on with your magazine? How come there's not? I mean, I was in the advertising business at that point. How come there's not any advertising in your magazine? He's like, well, you know, I've called all the game companies or contacted them and I send them copies and I, I haven't gotten anybody to, to advertise in it yet. In some of my free time, I got on the phone and started calling up game companies. And I'm like, hey, do you know about Shadis Magazine? They're like, oh, yeah, Jolly sends us a copy every couple of months. 
I'm like, how come you're not advertising in it? They're like, the ads are too small. We have to make a special ad for Jolly's print size. And there's no district. He doesn't have enough distribution. He's printing a hundred copies. I'm like, oh, I'm like, how many copies would we need to print to get your business? <laughs> uh, and, you know, it was only a few thousand copies. And so uh, I went back to Jolly after I had sales in hand and said, I'm in the advertising sales business and I can sell advertising in your magazine if we can change the size to make it a more standard magazine size. And so we worked through doing that with his little print shop, which was nearly impossible. And uh, my buddy Dave, um, my buddy Dave C, who I played Dungeons and Dragons with in high school, I, I came back and told all my old D and D buddies I was thinking about doing, a, you know, helping do a D and D magazine that any of them want to help. And Dave did. So we did a couple of magazines with only a few ads, and Dave and I used our money to help make sure they got printed. And then I think it was '93. We had talked to enough people and we had heard that, that White Wolf gave away 10,000 copies of their magazine every year at Gen Con. And we had never been, we had never been to Gen Con. We'd heard about it, obviously. And so we decided we were going to give away 10,000 copies of Shadis Number 9 at Gen Con. We got a little 10 by 10 booth. I got on the phone and started calling people and saying, we're going to bring 10,000 copies of our magazine to Gen Con and we're going to give them all away, you know, here by advertising. We sold enough advertising to have a, an outside printer print the magazine. We loaded them up in uh, my pickup truck and a U-Haul trailer that was dangerously loaded with magazines. <laughs> I mean, dangerously loaded. And um, we, me, Jolly, and Dave drove across the country. And one of us had to get in, the, the, my truck had a... Um, a camper shell on it and we had filled it with magazines and we'd made it like a trough in the middle so that somebody could lay down in between the magazines on top of them because we couldn't get three people in the cab of the truck. I love this. I love this story. <laughs> was, um, it was amazing. Yeah. Dave was a, Dave was a police officer at the time and, um, we got pulled over in like Denver and, uh, and the cop came up and Dave's like, just let me handle this. And the cop's like, Hey, um, what do you guys think you're doing? This looks a little dangerous. And Dave's like, Oh, I'm an off duty police officer. I got my, I got my uh, weapon in the car. And, uh, and him and the cop just had a conversation for like three minutes. He's like, all right, guys, be safe. See ya. <laughs> That's helpful to have a cop with you on the it ride. Is, <laughs> it is helpful to have a cop with you. So, um, so we got to Gen Con. And we unloaded the 10,000 magazines into this little 10 by 10 booth, which almost filled it up. And we had people walking by on the first day saying, what are you guys doing? We're like, we're going to give away 10,000 magazines. They're like, there's no way you're going to give away those magazines. And so we sat in the booth and gave away as many copies as we could that first day. And we probably gave away 750 copies. Yeah, <laughs> it was bad. Yeah. Um, and uh, did you ever did you ever do a Gen Con in Milwaukee? No, no, I didn't. I was indie before I started going. Okay, so um, so Gen Con in Milwaukee was spread out. Um, it was in the convention center, but there was another building across the street, and there were a bunch of events in the. I mean, in, in the hotels, as you know, as you know, Gen Con is, and 
there was a whole bunch of people that never made it to the booth. Like they were all queuing in line across the street for Dungeons and Dragons events. And that's that was their whole Gen Con. And so on day two, um, we had found out where, where, where all these people were queuing. And so um, we had Jolly in the booth and Dave and I just kept grabbing like racks of 25 and 50 magazines and hustling to where the lines were and giving the magazines to people. It was an exhausting three days, but we ended up giving away every one of those magazines. And um, uh, that was the same year the Magic the Gathering happened. Yeah. So that was nuts, right? So the whole industry was buzzing about, you know, about Magic and, and the, the, this game that people couldn't get, you know, couldn't get their hands on. And so we, not for any reason, we got the checklist for the first expansion or the first Magic the Gathering base game checklist. And we published it in issue number 10 of the magazine and we sold 10,000 copies. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's uh, which, which brilliant. Just dumb luck, right? Like yeah. there is absolutely no skill. I don't, you know, like. I, like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that at all. I mean, you, you, you seem like it, throughout this entire thing, right? You seize on opportunities and then you, you work your ass off <laughs> to get things done. And so the, you know, getting it to the point where you're, you know, you're hustling across the way, getting these magazines sold. So then, yeah, yes, magic just showed up and that maybe was lucky, but then the idea and, you know, wherewithal to be like, okay, well then I'm going to put the checklist in here and we're going to sell it is, is taking advantage of that opportunity. So, but yes, we didn't luck, know it was going to sell any magazines. We put the checklist in and then we told the distributors, this is the contents of the magazine. And we have this, Oh, by the way, checklist in it. And like the next day, the fax machine, fax that tells you how old the company is. The fax <laughs> machine started worrying with the with with orders coming through. Yeah, um, uh, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, and, um, that's great. That was the day that I sort of broke my dad's heart. I called him and said, "I'm getting out of the pizza business. I'm getting into the golf business." And he was, you know, he was happy. He's a golfer and 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 loved that stuff. And then I called him and I said, oh, "I'm getting out of the golf business and I'm getting into the game magazine publishing business." And like, I will never forget the sound in his voice. He was like, uh, can't you do both? <laughs> Can um, I still get free golf outings? Yeah, we, get free, <laughs> we, we get free golf out of it. And I said, you know, dad, if, if what I'm seeing happening right now continues to happen, I, you will know, we'll be able to pay for our golf. <laughs> it won't be, <laughs> we won't, we won't need to get the free golf. Um, right. Which it took a lot of years before that was um, before that was actually the case, but yeah. So we, um, I'm making a short story long, which is great. Uh, so we did Shadis Magazine for we we published it for 50 issues, and the year a year later we went to Gen Con and um, uh, you know Ryan Dancy. Yeah. Ryan Dancy was advertising his little company in Shadis Magazine. And showed up at Gen Con and we just became instant, like separated at birth, instant friends. Um, and we walked around, we walked around Gen Con and talked about all the CCGs and everything that was happening there. And, and you know, by the time Gen Con, the second Gen Con we went to was over, it was pretty obvious that we were going to try and make a collectible trading card game together. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I definitely want to dig into this because this is this is the wave, right? This is the every you know, magic is hot, 
everybody, their brother, sister, cousin, mother, all are making TCGs. Everybody wants in on this. And you are able to break through in a way that maybe three or four people are able to total. And I want to I want to talk about what 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 built L5R and how you were able to achieve that. Okay. Well, I I think that at that time, that year, everybody that printed a collectible trading card game didn't matter how good it was. They just made money. And there were a bunch of there were some good games that came out, but there were also just a bunch of, you know, either esoteric or just not great games that were just rushed out to, to, to sort of bandwagon on. And I, I remember some of those companies saying, yeah, we're not a collectible trading card game company. We're just doing this so that we can keep making role-playing games. And, uh, and, and, you know, Ryan, Ryan was like, um, why isn't your business the thing that's actually making you money? <laughs> so we left that Gen Con and then we, um, we formulated a plan to create Legend of the Five Ranks. The original meeting where we where we we got the few people that were uh, you know part of AEG and um, uh, Ryan's partners up in Seattle, where we brainstormed what we would do, we had a, we ended up with uh, uh, make a cowboy game, make a pirate game, and make a samurai game up on the board. When we said let's make a game about samurai. We had a couple couple of people at, working for me at the time who were who were just you know samurai nuts, um, and so th- that was the game that we were going to do. And most of the people working at AEG Shadis were had a role playing game background, so telling a story with the card game was something we were always going to do. The, the plan was we would tell this cool story and then we would and, and you would get the chapters as expansions um, that we released. Was it was the idea of having, uh, you know, tournaments and players evolving the story in there from the beginning or was it something that came later? That was not. So that was th- the fact that we knew that we were going to, to tell the story was always there. But then we sat down and said, you know, how are we going to get people to, you know, engage with this game? We can't compete with um, with with the games that are giving away money. We we you know, we just don't have the the, the budget to, to do that. And, um, you know, as sort of a marketing thing, we decided that it was going to be an interactive storyline. And we thought that it would be a few small interactive storyline points that we would let players make decisions with at events. And when we put that into our advertising and announced it, it just sort of took off. We were literally a business on a shoestring budget. We had Dave Williams, DJ Trindle, Matt Wilson, you know, Matt. Yep. Um, John Wick, you know, John. Yeah, I know John. Um, yeah. Uh, and a guy named Matt Starosik, Dave, um, Dave C, myself, and Jolly all working out of the LA office, and uh, Ryan and a few of his um, uh, gaming group working out of uh, an office in Seattle. And um, we had no money. We started doing this CCG, and then, uh, as you know, CCGs are expensive. Yeah, they're very expensive. That was going to be my follow up question. How do you start doing a TCG with no money? 
because I, I got I get people all the time that tell me that they want, you know, they're just starting in game design. They're like, I got this TCG. I want to make it. I'm like, OK, well, that's a big budget project to start with. How do how were you handling yeah. it? So we had cash flow from AEG. And then Ryan and I both got our parents to invest in Five Rings Publishing Group to, you know, to help um, uh, to help get the, the game printed. And Ryan got his uh, Ryan's company in Seattle were going to be the, the financiers of the game. So we had just enough backing to, to do the basics, like to get all of the art ordered and to get the game ready for for, for press. Yeah, no, I, I want to just sort of highlight a few of the things because, you know, the idea of sort of picking a theme that you guys were passionate about, right, Samurai, focusing on a way to differentiate yourself, which is sort of, we're going to tell a great story, right? I mean, magic is great and it's got a, a flavorful world, but especially at the beginning, it was more of a open-ended world with a lot of characters and you tell your own story. And here you guys were focusing on this communal storytelling in a very public way. And that engagement, as the hook was the thing that everybody knew about, you know, so this is what, what, this is what, 95, 96, this is happening. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I'm, I just start coming into this community around then. So not, I started playing magic in 96 and, and uh, won the U S national championships in 97. So then I start going to, you know, conventions and things. And all I hear is the L5R people just like cheering and doing their little chants at the other table. I'm playing for like $20,000 and they are way more excited than anybody at any of my tables. And it was amazing. I was like, the, the, what you guys have been able to build with enthusiasm uh, was something that has stuck. And it is, it remains the thing that we reference all of the time, both in my company and elsewhere, as the, the icon of that community building immersive storytelling like that incredible hook and magic that you guys were able to create is something that is has just made an indelible mark on the industry and so the fact that you were able to do it with you know borrowing money from your parents and you know just kind of hoping for the best as you were building this thing out is is, is amazing well the, the the funny thing is is that the when we finally so we did a um uh peter we i was friends with peter Atkinson, um but but friendly with peter and, um, and we asked Peter, you know, for like his one piece of advice, if we were going to do a collectible trading card game and his piece of advice was print a practice sheet, <laughs> like mm -hmm. print a practice sheet, learn that process. You'll save yourself a whole bunch of headaches and a whole bunch of money. So we, um, we built, uh, we, we basically built one practice sheet that had a demo deck on it and some promo cards. And, and we, and we printed that. And so, um, prior to the game releasing, we had these demo decks and we were, we were handing out demo decks to people and we were, we were running demos of the game and teaching people how to play the game, which, um, was, and this is before you, you don't actually have the main game printed at all. You're just demoing just to build, but yes, we, that was all, it was really all we could do at that point because we were, um, we got, one of the copies of scry in 95 to the offices and i opened that thing up and the shadow fist four panel ad fell off of that cover right like they they had that that girl that was flying through the air mm -hmm. and you know you opened up this magazine and i was like that's a $10,000 ad like that's 
nuts. We can't compete with that. Yeah. And uh, so we, 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 we can't compete with that. There's, there's absolutely no way. And, and, you know, we were very dejected at that point. We thought, wow, we are, we, we are likely in over our head, but we were so far in, we had to, we had to stay in. So our only play was to demo the game. And so we demoed like crazy. Uh, and then when we, when we finally released it, we had people come by the booth and learn how to play. And they would say, can I play some more? And we would be like, well, if you put on this AEG shirt and teach people how to play, you can stay at the booth and play. And so that is the magic. That is the magic moment. That's exactly the thing, right? Like when you get that point where you show the game to somebody and they just want to keep playing and we'll start sharing that with somebody else. That's when you know you've got something. A collectible special. trading I, I, card game. It is everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Um, yep. We. Even without that, I had the exact same story as what happened to me my first year oh. with Ascension. We had the same little dinky booth and we had just a couple staff and we were just hoping for the best. And used to, we started showing it off and people just start like sitting on the floor around the booth, demoing to people around them. And it's like, okay, this is it. Like it's, it's an amazing feeling. And it's the main thing that like I try to advise people. A lot of people will go first and they'll print an entire game or print an entire TCG before they have that moment before they know that people will share it, will independently play it. And that it, until you get that magic together, you have something that people want to share and play without you pushing them to do so, uh, you, you don't have anything. And so it's, it's, and it's, it's, it's an incredible thing once you do get to experience it. Well, we launched L5R into the first, the first CCG crash. Like the CCG crash was happening while our product was at the printers. And Prior to the crash, we had all 2,000 cases that we were printing sold. And every week, two or 300 of those cases would disappear. The fax machine was working, but it was working against us. People were like, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to take a, a, a little smaller you know, thing. Instead of buying 40 cases, we're going to buy 35. And then we're going to buy 30. And then we're going to... So we watched... 60% of our pre-sales disappear when the CCG crashed happened. Wow. Um, and we had, um, we had no money. We, all we had was the product. And so our only move was to give away free decks and demo. We couldn't run ads. And so we, we just hustled. Like you said, we went to every game store we could possibly go to. They set up a war room in Seattle. Um, we, the, the people who had become fans of the game during its first four months, uh, had you know, were were all wanting to go out and 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 get new get new players and build a build a player base for it. Um, we had the we 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 got sort of the anti magic crowd early on. Like yeah. it's like yep. you know we were we were Pepsi to Coke, right? So. There were people who were probably, we had some really good p players play L5R. And after five or six years, I think we saw some players who I would think were probably, you know, probably would have been professional CCG players at any level. But early on, I think we, we, we had a bunch of players who were good, but we were the small pond where they could be the big fish. Right, right. They can't be at the top of the magic pile, so they could they'll jump to this and they could be at the top of this pile, and then that makes them more excited. Absolutely. And then, 
grow the community. Yep. So, um, yeah. And it's, it, it, these, these are, these are, these are all just examples though, that just again, to highlight the universal principles here, of like turning weaknesses into strengths, right? You're broke and you can't advertise. Okay. We're going to demo the hell out of this and we're going to get our, you know, our army of enthusiastic people to, to come and go. I don't have the budget or the prize pool or the, you know, the size of the audience that magic has. Okay. Well, I'm going to attract the people that don't want to be in that pool and they want to be in a different pool. Like using those things and, and flipping them around, I think is just a key part of succeeding in business and, and, and really being able to position yourself. You know, it's better to be Coke, but being Pepsi is not a bad thing. Without a doubt. We were, we were probably more like RC Cola if we're, if we're being, if we're being honest here. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so the, 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 the rest of AEG's history has been, has, has been told, right? So yeah. we, we, um, we were always behind the eight ball after the CCG crash. We um, we immediately had um, we immediately had printer debt, which is is the worst, right? It's just oh yeah, you um, you you get into debt just enough so that it's it it doesn't kill your business, but it is sort of debilitating to all of the actions that you're going to take next. Yep, and um, because of the CCG crash, Ryan's business partner basically said, "We're not, we're not giving you money to print the first expansion for the for the for the set." The plan was print Shadowlands five months, four months after the base set released, and then have this cycle. And we couldn't put a we we didn't have the money to print Shadowlands, and we had the base set game, so. We actually spent a year building customers with the base set game before the Shadowlands expansion. Before we finally got, you know, outside money to to, to help us print the Shadowlands expansion, and that's when, you know, that's when L five R really took off. We we made it through the lean times where we were just demoing that Imperial edition, and then when we finally got some investment money with Shadowlands, we. It- it's the this is the pizza story all over again, man. It's really interesting. It's that same that same thing, right? You just hustle and grind for a year plus in a world where most people would be would be dead in the water. Most people would give up. I mean, to just the, just what you're saying. You released a TCG. You have an entire year before you're able to put new content out, and you're and you've got you know printer debt hanging over you. You have to just sort of hustle and sell set one and grow the base as much as you can that entire time. Most people crumble in that situation, and and it's. What do you think it is it about you? Where where did you get that kind of tenacity? Uh, because that's it's it's a really it's a really rare and precious thing. And then how would how would somebody else you know cultivate it? When do you know when when is it time to quit and when is it time to keep going? That's a that's a good question. I actually it, I know that a lot that, that 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 some of my my success stories are all about how I have um, I have fought through a very tough time and I've been tenacious, but. I see myself as um, a person that gets to a wall and um, looks at it and says, is there any way I don't have to go through this wall? I don't want to do that work. I want to go around the wall or through the door or over the wall if that's easier. So I'm, I'm actually somebody that, that, that usually looks for the easy path. Um, and I think that with the pizza business, 
it was, I was young and it was a grind and I didn't have anything else. And so I was, you know, I was kind of desperate with, at least with the gaming business, you know, the, the, the thing I had to do to, 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 to keep the dream alive was go play games, right? Like we would, you know, get in our car and drive into LA and go to shops and, and do demos, you know, every weekend. It was, it was amazing. So I, I don't think I answered your question. No, well, I think you did actually, because this is something that I tell people too, which is, look, no matter what business you're in, to to succeed is going to be hard. And and you forget business. I don't care if it's business or creative work or anything, right? There's grind that comes with the process. If you love what you do, if you love your day to day, then the grind is much more tolerable, right? It's not that the grind disappears, but that you could do it. You're like, yeah, okay, I got to play games every day. I got to, you know, show this off and sell this game to people that I love and I believe in. It's a very different story than I got to go sell insurance or I got to go do something that, you know, you're just not as fired up about. And so I think that insofar as you can hold on to the, no, I really do love this. And I really do believe in this that can help in the lean times that can help give you that extra motivation, that extra drive. Um, I, I, I think that, I think that definitely is a part of the story. Yeah. Well, you, you just said that so, better than I did. So I'll, <laughs> I, yeah, well, so I, I then, you know, now, nowadays, I just sort of to kind of fast forward a, a little bit, um, you know, I see that you've, you know, AEG has gotten to be, you know, not only just sort of an icon in the industry, but now you seem like you've got a real stride when it comes to being able to uh, launch games with a huge following on Kickstarter, to be able to, you know, have enthusiastic communities. And, you know, of course, the <laughs> plenty of the haters too that come with any large community, uh, but managing communities at scale and being able to launch things like that at scale, what what do you think is is leading to that success, and and how might uh, you know those of us who want to emulate it, uh, you know, go about it? So ten maybe ten years ten years ago, when we were sort of at the end of the cycle of the the collectible trading card game business. We had done L5R and Warlord and sold L5R and got it back. And um, we we decided that, that that we wanted to be, you know, that, that our next transition was going to be into board games. We I think our first two board games was a game called Monkey Lab and Abandoned Ship by Reiner Knizia. Um, and uh, I learned a valuable lesson buying that game from Reiner, right? Like Reiner is a legend, and, um, yes, he was, he was my first game design idol, uh, game designer idol when I was absolutely. Up. And I, um, I convinced myself that if we just bought a design from Reiner, that his name was going to sell that game and abandoned ship was a, was a great game. We did amazing production value on it. We actually made a ship sink while that game was being played. Um, huh. and, um, it tanked like the first two games we, we learned so many lessons. So like our first print run in China of monkey lab um, had mold in it. Oh. Like we had to destroy every copy. Like it was, and you know, I mean, you open up the box and there's like a little dot on the thing and you're like, what is that oil spot? You know, and then, you know, then it turns black and you're like, oh, that's not good. Um, and and abandoned ship, we, you know, we sold, I don't, I don't know how many copies we sold, but it wasn't, 
there wasn't nearly what we sell now of games and not nearly enough to, 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 to make transitional money. Um, and so we, um, you know, we kept, uh, we kept doing the, the CCG business to sort of to keep the business stable, but we knew that, that that wasn't going to be, that wasn't going to be the be all and end all for us because our team didn't love the grind that came with doing CCGs the way we had done them. So um, it wasn't just work on the CCG and then put the CCG out. When you build the kind of communities that we built with our storyline, collectible trading card games, um, you also build a situation where those fans always expect a little bit more and they take unbelievable like ownership they they all felt like owners of each of those storyline games and so it at first every decision that we made was um was a good decision but then we started making some decisions that caused people to not be happy we kill off a character in l5r the worst thing you could do was give a character a bad death in in fiction (laughs) And the work that we had to do outside of creating the game was much harder than the work that we had to do to develop the game itself. And uh, it became obvious to me that the only way that we could stay a CCG company would be to completely clear the decks of, you know, of every person working at AEG at that time. Because our staff, they didn't want to do the really, really hard work. And I didn't want to do that work anymore either. It was difficult. They didn't want to do the hard work to give the players the experience that they had gotten used to. Can you say more uh, the experience that they had gotten used to in what way? What does that, what does that mean? It means regular storyline events. It means, um, you know, quality, quality fiction. It means demos and special deals at stores the amount of energy it took to manage those communities was awesomely hard. Yeah. Right. It was, it was awesomely hard. And we slowly stopped doing our best work. I mean, there, you know, I, I, I haven't said it very often in very many places, but there were definitely periods of time. We weren't keeping our promise as a publisher. Like we had, shown you this, you know, this, this, this amazing place, this amazing experience with our storyline games. And then we just, I don't know if we were working hard enough or if we, we weren't inspired, you know, to have unique new ideas, but it was really, it it was really difficult. I appreciate you sharing that because it, it, it you know, I, I often wonder the same thing, right? Why the, the flip side of like why L5R, you know, sort of stays in everybody's mind is this icon of this storytelling, community building and interactive fiction is that nobody seems to, and not at least in my experience, nobody's done that since then. And I think it's part because it's really, really hard. It's a really huge burden, even though everybody wants to be able to do this sort of interaction well, it's incredibly difficult. And, and I can imagine it was wearing after years of trying to pull this off. It was wearing after years of trying to pull it off. We were older than like we were all young and single when we were when we were doing all of that stuff. And the L5R playbook was work all week, do some demos in the evening, then go do demos all weekend, 
um, go to as many conventions as we could go to. It was a young man's game, without a doubt. Like, there's no way I could keep up that pace uh, that I would have been able to keep up that pace now, right? Like, or, or even 10 years ago or whatever. So Magic the Gathering and CCGs changed the industry in, uh, in a pretty amazing way. Then Dominion came along, right? Dominion came along. And um, I don't think Dominion gets enough credit for being um, as influential in changing the gaming industry as well. So your first game. I haven't, I haven't heard of that one. What, tell me more. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. Obviously had a huge impact on, on my, on my yeah, life. My, exactly right. uh, my entire, my, I saw that game was like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm going to build, I'm going to build a business around that model. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> it, so it was, it was amazing. Yeah. I think that the difference between the rush to do deck builders and the rush to do collectible trading card games was whether purposefully or not, the industry had definitely learned from its mistake of just rushing out bad deck builders. Uh, Ascension and Thunderstone and, uh, you know, a, a list of deck builders that, that came out um, that were second to market or, you know, there were a bunch of really quality, really unique games that gave people a different deck building experience, right? That were mostly fun, like, like, like there weren't a lot of bad deck builders that came out right after Dominion, right? Like people were like, oh, this just makes sense. So um, our first successful boxed game was Thunderstone. Yep. Right. We, um, Mike Elliott uh, uh, contacted us. We, we talked to Mike about, about Thunderstone and, He's a he's what I call a Reese's peanut butter cup designer. He's like, what if we smash Dominion with Dungeons and Dragons, right? <laughs> like, yeah, uh, he, he thinks that way a lot. So um, we uh, we had this this really nice game, and then we spent eight months or whatever it was getting it to be more like Dungeons and Dragons. That was our our goal. Is, is when it, when we got it, it was a lot more like Dominion, right? And we worked with Mike to. Um, to, to, to make that game feel more like Dungeons and Dragons, which was a, you know, a smart move for us, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. For, for, my, for me, I think my favorite part of Thunderstone, obviously, you know, we, since we kind of both came to market at the, around the same time as the, as the, the follow-up to Dominion, I, uh, the thing I, I really admired about Thunderstone was the, the leveling up mechanic that you guys had, yep. uh, with, you know, the characters can get, you know, gaining XP and being able to like upgrade the cards themselves in your deck. Uh, I thought was a really great innovation, um, and yeah. Whereas you kind of took Dominion and and D and D and pushed in that direction, I took Dominion and and drafted. You know, Magic drafting and sealed play yep. is kind of the direction I, I I went I went with mine. So clearly, a lot of a lot of space there. I I think it's interesting too because I I would push back a little bit on your theory about deck building games. I think I think obviously there were several good ones that came out. I think there were several bad ones that came out uh, quite a few uh but the the two things i think that worked in the favor of of deck building games is one the industry well the industry had matured so i think game design overall was better yep. uh than it was back when when magic first came out i think a lot of people learned a lot over the interim years and i think that the since the the both the barrier to entry and the cost of being involved in a deck building game is so much lower 
than a TCG, right? If you're playing a TCG, you play one TCG, maybe two, yeah. because it's like hundreds of dollars of commitment to really like be invested in a TCG. But you could buy an entire deck building game for 40 bucks and you've got everything that you need. So owning and playing a variety of deck building games is no big deal. You can like Dominion and Ascension and Thunderstone and play them all. And that's fine. You could still, you know, afford to pay rent. Uh, but, but you couldn't do that if you were a heavy player of, you know, Magic and Pokemon and L5R or whatever. Unless you were winning world championships. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, so you you were able to kind of tra- make that transition, um, have a big success with Thunderstone. Yeah. And, and the lessons that you had learned from building a community, from, you know, teaching people and growing via demos, all of that stuff then seemed to be key in playing to your ability to differentiate yourself as a, as a board game company. That is very true. So we, up until, uh, you know, eight years ago, we did a lot of internal design. Like we, we had not figured out how to take pitches from outside de- designers very well. And even when we did take those pitches, we had a lot of people like, the, the development process at AEG was was more development design because that's just 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 how we we had started as a company. When we said let's make a game about samurai or cowboys or pirates, like we filled endless whiteboards with with just the ideas of what needed to be in a samurai game. You can see in L5R that whiteboard, right? Like the fact that duels had to be in there and that Honor is a force more powerful than steel. That came from one of those whiteboard sessions, right? Where seven of us sat in the room and talked about being honorable in the samurai culture was way more important than being a good swordsman or being a good politician. That your honor meant everything in Japan and that 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 we needed to make sure that that was an important part of the characters and the culture of this fantasy world that we were building. And we did that for all of the games. And then we reversed engineered the play experience from it. So, you know, that that happened with Thunderstone as well. We we knew that it was Dominion meets Dungeons and Dragons. And so we thought, what are things that have to be in this game um, if it's going to be that? And leveling up the characters was an obvious one. That game wouldn't have been nearly as good if 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 the characters didn't level up. Yep, 100 percent um yeah so now there's a couple of pieces to this i kind of want to expand out on because you talked about the ability to you've transitioned from a company that builds things and designs internally to a company that's able to take in pitches from the outside and you know cultivate and develop those and so i'd love to learn more about that because i have definitely fallen into the other camp you know we we build everything internally pretty much and uh don't really have much of a pitching process at all uh and so I, I'd be curious kind of how that got built up and what, you know, both from both sides, both if you're someone that wants to be able to take in pitches or if you're someone that wants to pitch to a game company, uh, what, you know, kind of what goes into that? Okay. Well, um, 10 years ago, the two books that you were instructed to read, if you came to work at all direct entertainment group, and I think we've had this conversation uh, privately before. I know that you are a book hound and are always looking for for the next best thing. But the two books that you were instructed to read were Good to Great, which was the the model that, that we were trying to use to to figure out who we were going to be as a company. And our focus statement that we ended up with, you know, from from that was be the best small game company in the world, right? 
you, you have to put a true, a possible statement out into the, in, into the world. And then everybody at your company has to buy that statement if you're going to do the good to great path, right? Like we don't want to be the greatest game company in the world. We want to be the greatest small game company. And then we, we did a, a whole series of things where we defined what it meant to be a, the greatest company in the world and that, what it meant to be small. And so we had that framework 10 years ago when we were looking at doing this, this, this transition. And then the other book was <laughs> the four hour work week, <laughs> which the messages in those two books are almost diametrically opposed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. The four hour work week was my, I think when we talked about this before I mentioned it, but that was the thing that got me first motivated me to quit my job uh, at upper deck and try to start my own company. That uh, was just that the basics of the fear setting exercise, like, eh, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to me? Uh, and kind of kind of kicked me off uh, that that path. I'm, I'm, I have not read Good to Great, which I'm now making a note of that I need to do that. Oh, that book is. Yeah. So it took me a while to explain to the people who were, were working for me. I, I would say you're going to read this, the, the four hour work week, and you need to read it through the lens of not a selfish lens, right? Like we, we've got this structure that we got from good to great, which we're trying to, to create. And the lessons that you can learn from the four hour work week is just full of interesting information. And it's also full of crap, right? Like there's, Oh yeah. No, yeah. You gotta, fil- you gotta filter through that at all. It's got, it's got, it's got gems, but you got to sift. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but totally. um, it's easy to read that book and say, oh, um, this is a book about how I cheat the system, right? Like, but if you, if you pair that with, with life goals and company goals, it's not about cheating the system. It's about what I said earlier, about finding the shortest path to success. Why would you work on something for eight hours when you can get the same result doing it for four, right? Right. And um that book changed the way I managed people at, at AEG and the way we managed people. If you work for our company, you have a lot of freedom. There, there's a schedule and there's, there are things that we, that we talk about as being things that we need to do, but you don't have a boss, you know, that is micromanaging you and making you tell him what he got done this week. You know, if you come to, to work at AEG and in any of the jobs, it, it used to just be like, it started with the creative team, but I, I sort of let it blossom out to everybody. There is no Uber boss at AEG telling you that, you, you know, you need to show up at work on time. You need to be here doing X, Y, and Z. There's just a, a set of best practices, which you quickly learn when you come to work for our company. If you don't follow those practices, the company, the company, you know, sort of ejects you. Like there are a bunch of people who are all on a path to try and make us the best small games company in the world. You know, if you're not one of those people, you don't last here. Right. You need to be aligned with the vision and the company culture. And then from there, you know, run with the ball. Yep. Um, am I correct that, uh, I, I think I remember the story that you were, uh, the, uh, you invented the term dictatocracy. Is that, <laughs> is that, <laughs> Dictocracy. Yes. <laughs> Can you explain what that means? Everybody gets an opinion, and then we do what I say. <laughs> yes. That has um, that has that. I'm I'm less of a, a dictoc, dictocrat a dictator now <laughs> yeah. than, than than I was. Um, yeah. 
it, it can be frustrating for me at times when we have to work through people's opinions. When I had my, uh, oh, it's we're, we're coming up on the, the the four month anniversary of when I had I had a tumor this year, which um, we haven't talked about yet. But but I had a tumor, and um, I learned that what we have built is strong, right? Like the team just kept doing their jobs. The, the company just kept moving forward. Uh, it was the, the, the tumor was probably the final thing that I needed to fully let go of any micromanaging that I was doing. Like I've got great, great team members and, you know, I trust them and more often than not, when we get into an argument over whether we're going to do thing one way or another, both ways are usually pretty good. Like by the time we get to a point where we're arguing over which decision we're going to make, it is almost seldom, you know, a good decision or a bad decision. Right. So, well, and it's actually one of those, I mean, it's obviously you had, you had to learn this lesson a very hard way and it's, uh, but it's, it is, it's a powerful one, right? That, you know, the ability to let go the ability to trust your people to run, you know, and do their, do their thing. And also just that if, you know, when you're arguing over something, not, not getting so entrenched in your own position. And that actually as a leader, whenever possible, you should be going with what your, you know, your teammates and what your, what your team wants to do and, and allow them, even if it's, you think it's a mistake, allowing them to make the mistakes and learn is going to be far more powerful, you know, if it's not, ex- like you said, not an extremely wrong decision, uh, then, then saying, no, it's got to be exactly this way because, you know, Eve, as, as brilliant as you might be, sometimes you're wrong too. And uh, that takes a while to, to internalize, but uh, it's, a, it's a powerful lesson. When I have been wrong in the past, there have been some doozies. <laughs> um okay so what was the question that you just asked it was well we um, were i really wanted to get into the pitching process uh and and saying you now you now set up a system around uh other people being able to pitch games in and build build a sort of not just an internal team to build stuff uh and and you are reimagining and resetting up your your company to be more streamlined in this way and so you mentioned good to great and getting a focus statement on the book and for our work week and making it more efficient and being able to not micromanage and let your team run. And so then maybe some either if you want to take it in either direction of then what is it like the process for being able to take in pitches and, and, and how you run that through your company or the other way around, if you'd like, and what makes a good pitch and what makes those things successful. Okay. So I, I think that you, um, you you will agree with me that one of the hardest things to do once you are a game company is to play your games. <laughs> it still feels after 28 years of doing this, like I am screwing around when I am playing games. <laughs> I, I can't get, well, I have gotten over that feeling, but it took me 25 years before I realized that that was that we would buy a game and play it four or five times, and then we would publish it. And then we'd be surprised when that game wasn't successful. Yeah. Right. Like it, it was, it was literally just a, just, just a product that we put out. So we have learned that for a game company, we believe the most important thing we do is picking the products that we're going to publish. So there was a day when 
playing games was not like I am my father's son and I have tons of great stories about my dad, but I, um, he helped with the company all the way up until he died in 2001. And he would come to our offices in Ontario and a truck would show up and it would have, you know, it had a bunch of boxes that we need to, to take out. And I remember specifically this day when a truck arrived and it was me and him and Dave C and, and there was a, a big L5R meeting happening and we had to walk past the L5R meeting with boxes. Hmm. <laughs> After like the fourth trip, my dad was like, what are those guys doing? How come they, don't they see us lifting these boxes? Shouldn't they be helping us unload this truck? And I was like, they're filling the truck, dad. Like their job is more important than what we're doing right now. If having them help us unload the truck would feel good for us, but we're paying them to think and to put ideas on that whiteboard and to, to end up putting them in a box. We're not paying them to move boxes into the office. That's what we get to do. <laughs> and so uh, I think that three years ago, I guess it was three years ago, we decided that I wasn't going to be the, the running the company anymore. My job was going to be the head of development, finding new games. And um, we put Ryan Dancy in charge of running the company and Nicholas Bonchou in, in charge of running our international business. And, and my job became working with the developers to make the very best games that we could make and finding games that we could publish. And we rented a house in Orange County on a street called Larkstone, and we call it the Larkstone House. And it is basically just the, the rule is no business in this house, just gameplay. So we would just show up every day and, and play games. We would invite designers to um, when we would sign a game or we wanted to sign a game, we would invite designers to come down and stay at the Larkstone house and we would wine and dine them and we would play games for, you know, two, three, four five days uh, that they were in town. And what we found was not having the gameplay happen where an environment where work was the most important, having it happen in a place where play was the most important. And then most importantly, having almost everyone that was interacting, staying under that same roof. We have had so many inspirational conversations over a bowl of Cheerios in that house in <laughs> the two years that it was operating. It was unbelievable. Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. What a great, what a great process. I mean, being able to, you know, learn that lesson of separating, you know, take se creating that separate space for creative work valuing the creative part of the process, being able to, you know, actively, you know, work with designers and cultivate that, um, you know, both uh, fun and effective uh, for actually building things that are that are going to be great and are going to be worth doing all the business side stuff uh, for. Yep. And it makes the business side that much easier. We have a great salesperson. We have a great marketing team. They have figured out how to sell a good number of copies of a decent game, of a good game. But selling a great game is just easier, right? Like instead yeah. of selling, you're allocating. Instead of desperately needing to convince people that they need to buy a game, you're informing people about 
the availability and how good the game is. The whole company's workload shifts to being easier when you're selling great games. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like, I feel like in the last few years, we have really leveled up our game and the number of winners that we're publishing is much higher. The biggest decision that we made, Justin, was that we, um, we said that we were just going to make fewer games. We still develop about the same number of games, but we don't publish them. Our goal is to be, is to be making one game a year, <laughs> wow. which is nuts, right? Like, but we want to be so good at picking that one game a year that we are, that we're making ticket to rides, not, um, you know, not monkey laps. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's such a hard uh, decision to be able to make it right. You're like, well, okay, so here's how we're going to make our business better. We're going to release less product. Like, oh. you know, that's that there has to be some pushback <laughs> as you were internally to be like, wait a minute, what? Um, but, you know, releasing and spending the time to make something good uh, is, is worth it. And it's also just a more fulfilling way to run the business too. Um, uh, even if sometimes you're like, oh, I wish I could do more, but being able to do something great is, uh, is, is more than a 10 X, uh, overdoing something good. Absolutely. I agree with that. So as far as pitching games to game companies and pitching them to AEG, I, I went I, I have a tendency to get long winded about my stories, right? So I believe that most game companies are not super focused on looking at all of the, um, at looking at all of the games that, that get submitted to them. Like almost every company has a send game submissions to this, to, you know, game submissions at alldirect.com or whatever our, our, our email address is, which for the record, it's creative at alldirect.com if you want to send games to us. If a lot of those, uh, they're, they're at, at, at game companies and at AEG for a long time, Nobody was spending the time to sift through all of those games to figure out which games we should actually take a look at. Um, well, and to be fair, that's it's a lot of work, and most game submissions are terrible. So it is, uh, it is not. It takes it takes real effort to to sort through them and find the good ones that uh, that can be cultivated into something great. Yeah, I uh, you know I believe in the you got to kiss a lot of fo- frogs to find a princess, right? Like, mm-hmm. like that's that's how we do business. I send. I would say I send probably 40 or 50 rejection letters a month out to people. Uh, and, you know, we only bring in two to four new games a year for development. But I can tell you that we look at all the sell sheets that come in and we contact designers who have interesting, uh, interesting ideas. I can tell you the things that we look at that, that, that sort of um, that stand out for us with sell sheets. So sell sheets and those little three minute videos are the, are the, are the first way to reach most game companies now. Right. Yep. Um, for us, we get a lot of pitches from designers of, um, you know, this is a game about fantasy fighting and, and going into dungeons and, and, you know, doing X, Y, and Z nowhere in the pitch or on the sell sheet is the elevator pitch. What makes your game unique and different or better than something that's on the market now? Like yep. the chances of a game designer discovering the next deck building 
very slim. We don't get, I mean, I don't think we get any pitches from designers that are like, this is a totally new mechanic, <laughs> right? Like that, that just doesn't happen. So right. what we're looking for is what is the hook that is going to make somebody want to buy your game, play your game, right? Like what's the hook that's going to make us want to play your game? Because even though we're playing more games than we ever have before, our time is still limited, right? Like we, we, we have to get people through that first gate and play games that we think that we can then turn into products. We have a couple of buckets that we're trying to fill with, with, with games at AEG. So we're always looking for our next big Kickstarter. Right? You mentioned that we've had some success on Kickstarter, which we have. Again, thank you, Thunderstone. Our first Kickstarter was a, a relaunch of Thunderstone. But we're, we're looking for the next game that we can level up into an expensive Kickstarter and those games are actually really hard to pitch. We don't get very many pitches from game designers for epic level games that could be Kickstarters. What what makes what makes a game a epic level pitch that could be a Kickstarter? What are you looking for so, when you're saying this is this could be the next big thing? So a game that we're going to put on Kickstarter needs that like any game we look at has to have so sort of a nugget that makes that game fun, right? That that, 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 you know, we've combined this engine building mechanic with this worker placement that, that creates this really unique play experience. Um, and uh, it, it could be any mechanics, you know, whether it's new or, or a combination of mechanics that already exist. But an epic level Kickstarter product can be leveled up. We haven't done a game with a bunch of miniatures in it, but games that 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 like miniatures or um or have a that that could have a lot of components or that use um storage containers that you put into the into the box i watched a video for uh, a shut up and sit down video the other day that that ryan shared with me and it was it was a, a like a 4x engine building game and the guy was like well you know there are 123 things that you need to pass out to the individuals to play this game and, you know, he listed off all this weird stuff that you had to do. And then he's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to do that now. And then he just reached into the box and he took out these five little plastic containers and put them in front of people. It's like, okay, I'm done. Right. Like, and then he opened one up and he just showed how elegant the, the, the system to put away your components was, but also the fact that you would just open up that box and move a couple of things around and then you'd be ready to play. That's the kind of thing that we can only do if we're kickstarting a game, like the, the cost to make that mm -hmm. player carrying case is, is too onerous to put into a game that we're trying to sell at retail. Um, Makes sense. So yeah, so those big components, those large, large kits, high price point things tend to do better for a Kickstarter project because you know, yes. you, you have the margin uh, as opposed to putting it into a retail store. That makes sense. Yep. We had a similar thought, obviously, with uh, when we moved from Ascension to Ascension Tactics. It was like, well, okay, we've got a lot of miniatures. It's a big thing. It would be to sell this at retail would have to cost like $200, but I could sell it for 100 on on Kickstarter. So yeah, uh, it's something we can actually make. All right. Um, anything else in that, in that bucket uh, that makes you kind of stop and take a look? Obviously, this core of fun, decent number of components, cool storage container, something that kind of visually is appealing. Yeah, we're we're doing a couple of um 
We'll see. We're doing a couple of our next two Kickstarters are not going to be are not going to be hundred to hundred dollar games. They're going to be sixty and seventy dollar games with 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 really nice components. So maybe what we're looking for, you know, will change. I think that that what Ryan has told me, Ryan and Luke, who Luke runs our Kickstarters, um, we're actively looking for something big right now. So the other bucket is games that we can sell at retail for $40. That is where most designers are actually doing, you know, where they're doing their work now. We see a lot of pitches that are low complexity games that are like Splendor or or any of the games right now that, that people have in their collection. And we think that those $40 games, there is no end to the number of those games that you can own other than the amount of shelf space that you're willing to, to displace. I think that that, that 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 that's a new problem that that you and you know us that, that all publishers are going to have to deal with. Like the, the game rooms are full now, right? That like the, at some point somebody's going to say enough. Don't don't keep buying new games. Yeah, so I've seen I've seen I think that people just need bigger game rooms and more shelves. That's really the answer. I, absolutely, <laughs> I think that that's, that that that's what your living rooms for. Yeah. So we're always looking. Most of our games that we publish in a year fit into that sort of somewhere between a $20 retail and a $60 uh, retail. The $60 games are tougher, right? When you do a $60 game, you can get a lot of buy-in on that early. We've done a few. Uh, We recently did Ecos, which was a $60 game. But keeping momentum on a $60 game is harder than keeping momentum on a $40 game because there is an actual purchase decision that you're making on that $60 game, right? It gets into that, that, that area that you were talking about, about how much money do I have to spend on my hobby? Right. Right. Um, yeah. For, $40, $20 game, $40 game. Those are just impulse decisions. Uh, you know, $60 game and, and up now it's like, okay, I got to think about this a little bit more. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so there are a, a number of $60 games that, that, you know, are, are very successful we um we we still have at least one of those in our in our in our lineup each year but for us sort of the magic spot is is a game that we can sell for $40 we determine that based on how much what what the cost of goods are in the box so a game you sell on kickstarter you get 92% of the money that shows up on that kickstarter which is why companies can do bigger more interesting things. With a game that you sell at retail, you only get 40% of that price. So when we sell a $40 game, we only get $16. It's a way different business than selling a $40 game on Kickstarter and getting $34 or $35. Oh yeah, I know all too well. <laughs> it's uh, it's that's why yeah, people don't don't recognize how much you know you need to kind of up mark your product because of how little you actually get of that percentage and why it's one of the reasons why Kickstarter has been such a great uh, platform for for board games in particular. I think uh, is that it, it it does it lets it lets you have a direct connection to your audience. It lets you sell at a much higher margin so that you can make give more good stuff and higher quality products to players. Um, and, and again, tying back into what you talked about, all of those skills learned from building communities and engaging and having fans that feel like they are owners, right? This was the, the main thing for Mel5R. It's exactly the same thing with Kickstarter, right? You, I, I advise everybody that's going to Kickstarter. It's like you're a big part of your job when you're doing that 
is making sure that those people that back you feel like owners, they feel like a part of the process. And that's, that's a lot of what they're paying for is to be, you know, a part of the team. And, and, and that, uh, you know, is not an easy thing to fulfill that promise that you're making. A good chunk of your customers on Kickstarter want to come along for the ride, right? Like, like, I think that, that, that people are buying so many Kickstarters now that I think there is room to innovate in how you interact with your customers after a Kickstarter has funded. So, you know, hopefully that will end up on one of our whiteboards and we'll be doing this again in a year and you'll be like, well, you know, you guys innovated again. You did it again, John. You did it again. Yeah, well, I, lo- I would love to do that. And I know we've, we've, we've run over time here a little bit, so I, I want to be uh, respectful. Uh, you've given a ton of awesome uh, insights here, uh, but I know you're doing a lot more of this on a regular basis. Not only are you taking in pitches, but you guys have built a, a Facebook community for game designers. Uh, you've been doing other things. So for those designers out there that want to be a part of this and want to uh, hear more from you, or you already gave us the creative at alderac.com pitch address, but what are the other places they can go to connect with your community and, and, and hear more about, about the games you're doing and, and, and maybe pitch some games to you themselves? So on, on Facebook, we've got a thing called the Alderac Design Center. We've got 828 members in it currently. So I just checked. And that is mostly game, current game designers or aspiring game designers. We're using that to, I mean, we, we just started that this year and then, um, and I was sort of running it. And then, you know, I've been out with health issues. So it is, uh, it is the sort of main place where we're communicating with designers about what games we're looking for. We are looking at, at pitches there. We also have the, the, the creative at Alderac website where you can send us your pitch sheets and your um, three to four minute videos. We take a look at all of those. I take a look at all of those. That is um, that's something that I, that, that I try to do uh, every week. Blind submissions. I would say that the, the number of games that we have gotten into publication because of blind submissions is still pretty low. But we have built really good relationships with designers who then we've ended up publishing their games. Maybe the game that they pitch us isn't the one that that, that, that we do, but I but I connect with them and um, you know we get to talking and and the next pitch that they give us is 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 more in tune with with the way we play games or the way we want to we want to publish games. Yeah, well, and I would just I would just give everybody out there that's thinking about you know pitching games and being a part of this process the same advice that you uh, learned or at least exhibited in the pizza place and with L5R and going forward, right? It's the, the, the failure and the, and the, the low times are going to be there, but that persevering and keep going, your first pitch is not likely to succeed. But if you build relationships, if you show you're good to work with, you show you're improving and learn lessons and, you know, get better and iterate, then, then, you know, you will succeed in the long run. And so I think you, you creating that environment for people is, is fantastic. So, um, thank you for doing that. And, no and thank you for doing and thank you for doing this. And it's it's I know, you know, obviously it's been a, a rough year. You've, you've been through a lot and it's it's wonderful to see you, you know, back up and running and, and to be able to have these conversations still. You've been uh, such a great friend and I've learned so much from you over the years. Uh, and to be able to share that wisdom here uh, has been an honor. So thanks very much, John. You too, Justin. All right. We, uh, J- Justin and I have been cultivating, a, a, you know, a, a weekend out for quite some time. <laughs> and after I'm fully healed. 
we're going to make that happen after all the, the lockdown stuff is over. We're probably just going to go berserk. So you just say when and where, my friend. Are. I am a hundred percent in. That's one of the reasons why people were telling you that you are the new Johnsons. Like, <laughs> I was like, there was a day when you know, you if you told me something was happening, I would just parachute in and be there for that party. Um, that you know that 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 has slowed down now that I'm now that I'm in my fifties, but. Well, but, uh, I just turned 40 uh, and obviously I've had to slow down and, you know, I mean, since the whole world had to slow down here a bit, but, uh, but we, we got at least one more outing in us. I, I believe in us. Absolutely. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks, Justin. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.